Thank you for coming on today's God as Creator and His glory due to Him. I'm Fernando, your host. Let's go ahead and pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for opening our eyes, our ears, our hearts, and our minds, Lord. Thank you for making us one through Jesus Christ, through your sacrifice of your Son on the cross. For you so loved the world that you gave him to us, that we through him might be resurrected and have new life for eternity, for your composure, for your will to be done and to save others in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Father, for giving us the IQ of Jesus Christ. Thank you for giving us the righteousness of your Son, Jesus. Thank you for giving us the wisdom of Christ Jesus. Thank you for giving us his sanctification and his redemption. And thank you, Father, that we may go out there and do duplicate ourselves like the RNA of Jesus Christ. We are his DNA, Lord God, constantly. We're new creatures, born again, filled and resurrected with Jesus Christ and filled with power and love and enthusiasm. Hallelujah. To give you all the glory and the honor. Thank you, Father. We are in it to win it once and for all. Nothing missing, nothing broken. Shalom in Jesus' name. Amen. So Chuck Missler, I have heard so much about this guy throughout my 40 years of Christianity since I was resurrected with Jesus Christ back in the 80s. And I hear him in radios, you know, and here and there. But now, 2023, I'm able to sit down at 2.30 in the morning. I couldn't sleep. I went to sleep at 9, so I got five hours at least. And I put him on. And I always ask the Holy Spirit to randomly pick something from YouTube. And sure enough, you know, I just saw his title. And I I put, I put went to the, I usually like to find out if I'm going to like it or not. And I'll go to the middle of the sermon and, and plug it in. And I figured if God wants to get my attention, he will. And he, I went to sermon number two. This is number two of his Kingdom Serious Talks. And this is called Something About Wisdom. I'll tell you in a minute. Let me see. It's uh, the beginning of wisdom, Chuck Missler. Well, good morning. Nice to have you with us in our exploration of the beginning of wisdom, part two. And uh, let's bow our hearts for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your presence. We thank you for your word. We pray, Father, that the Holy Spirit would open our hearts and lives to what you have here for us this day. As we attempt to discover more clearly just what it is that you would have of us this day. As we commit this hour and ourselves into your hands in the name of Yeshua, our precious Lord indeed. Amen. We are in part two of a two-part series, Beginning of Wisdom. I want to explore a little bit your epistemological IQ. Now, epistemology is just a big word for the study of knowledge, its scope and its limits. Epistemology tries to answer how do we know anything. And uh, so I want to find out how good a scientist you are by the way you respond to this peculiar thing that happened to me a couple of years ago. And uh, <clears throat> I want to talk a little bit about some beads I had in my workshop. And they spilled on the floor and I went, and, I picked up, a, so it wouldn't happen again, 
instead of just picking them up, I put them on a, on a, on a thread. And as I put them on the thread, um, I discovered the strangest thing happened. As I started to look at the order that they were on the thread, I realized it was in Morse code, and it spelled out, in the beginning, God. And I thought, whoa, that is weird. And that it, uh, uh, so the question I have of you is, how many believe that? Good, okay, I'm glad to hear that. Because some of you think I'm make, make, making that all up, that these beads just happen to come on the string in that order. And uh, so the question is, did that happen by chance as I described it? Or did I premeditatedly do that? And uh, so the question is, the sequence either occurred through random chance, that's the premise I'm making here, or by deliberate design. Now it turns out that on that, that uh, string were 347 beads. And they spell in Morse code, in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. Now this is an alphabet of two, black and white. They're just black and white beads. I have 347 beads that happen to come out in just that order. You all recognize that it's unlikely that that really happened the way I described it, that it was all by chance. You haven't done the math, of course, but let me point out that if you have an alphabet of two, and there's 347 elements, the, the chance of getting any particular string is one chance in with 10 with 104 zeros after it. In other words, that's really, really, really unlikely. You know that by instinct, as I tell my little story, you smile because you know I'm putting you on with my little story about the beads on the floor of my workshop. But you didn't do the math, but you just from your instinct, you can sense that that's just really unlikely. What you may not realize is that there is a law in physics called Borel's Law. There are times when something becomes so unlikely you need a cutoff for mathematical reasons. And so they've defined in math and in physics a limit. 10 with 50 zeros after is so unlikely it can be dismissed. They call that Borel's Law, 10 to the 50th. This, 10 to the minus 50. This is 10 to the minus 104. I mean, it's way out of there. To suggest that that happened by accident is technically absurd. It's not just unlikely, it's really not likely, okay? You with me so far? I just want you to remember this example because we're gonna talk about some other examples. Here we're just talking about 347 beads and it's out of the ballpark. You with me so far? Okay. Now, I'm introducing you a little bit into the information sciences. And in that field of study, there is an expression called ram randomness, by chance. The mathematical term is entropy. Entropy is just a fa fancy way of saying uh, randomness. Most of us, if you've had any math in college, it's what we call deterministic math. Two plus two is four, always. You follow that's, that's a form of mathematics called deterministic. There's another field of mathematics that's, called, that's statistical. And that's where, where you have a collection of data involved. And those are stochastic 
processes. Now, it turns out <clears throat> if you're studying in that area, you occasionally need to have access to a truly random number. And you discover something very strange. You can't get a truly random number. Whatever procedure you might try, by the fact it's a procedure, makes it no longer random. You may try to, so technically, what you're searching for is what's called a pseudo-random number, one that is almost random. I want you to understand that mathematically, you can't put your hands on a random number. You can approximate one, but you, it's, it's an elusive thing. Nowhere can you find one, strangely enough. So it turns out the granddaddy of think tanks, the Rand Corporation, Santa Monica, I was there for three years. The Rand Corporation, back in 1955, published a book that was regarded a landmark in the, in the technical field. It's a book that is called a, a One Million Random Digits. Now, if I showed you that, you'd think I was pulling your leg or put, putting you on. Here's a book which, if you look at it, it has a whole, just page after page after page of random numbers. And now to the layman, you think, you gotta be kidding. Those are just numbers, they have no meaning. No, it was considered a landmark because in those days, the Rand Corporation had access to the largest supercomputers available. And they published this having the computers really, really, really try to make them random. There's tests for randomnesses. And so it turns out that's not as trivial as it sounds. I'm trying to make a point, so just bear with me here. Uh, it turns out that what they used the computers for was to examine those numbers to make sure there was no predictability, there was no symmetry, there are no patterns, that the numbers were as random as possible. And they had the computer study, study, study to make sure that they're random. Do you follow me? So if you understand the elusiveness of a random number, that book at the time was a milestone for people in laboratories that needed a source of random numbers. They now had a source that came close. You follow me? So um, the point I'm trying to get across is randomness is defined mathematically as a total absence of design. If there's any symmetry, any patterns, it's no longer random. See, random, it's got to be really random, okay? Any number should have an equal probability of being the next number. No matter what number you've got, the next one should be random, not derivative of the previous one. You follow me? That's an elusive thing to do. Now, so in information sciences, you have disorder at one extreme, and of course, order at the other. We have noise, which in, as an engineering, that's what you don't want, versus the signal, which is what you're after. Engineers are always trying to improve the signal to noise ratio. Getting the most signal with the least noise is the idea. And in the real world, you could never get rid of all the noise, but you try to get it so down that you're not aware of it, okay? Music on the opposite is a form of order and cacophony. Now, some of you would say today's music is sort of ambiguous. I won't go there. Okay. On the left side of the chart, I just we have chaos, confusion. 
And on the right side, we have causes, the Greek term causes, which means to bring order out of chaos. That's the Greek root from which we get the word cosmetic, bringing order out of chaos, right? <laughs> gotcha, didn't I? Okay. There is a new field of mathematics, by the way, emerging just in recent years called chaos theory, where they try to study chaos and it has aspects that, that draw their attention. But the main point I'm trying to get across, randomness is on one extreme, design on the other. Randomness and design are opposites to one another, and as much as you can. So the stuff on the left, we call entropy or randomness, and on the right, we call that information. The whole study of the information sciences is to study the role of information, how it gets damaged, how it gets lost, how it gets adjusted, and uh, it's lack of purity and so forth. And uh, all of you have, now you also, I want you to get across, it's really important as we go forward today for you to realize that those two terms are opposite to each other. They can't, you can't mingle them, they are opposites. Okay, in fact, you'll notice something else in life is that you always gravitate to the left. Your information gets contaminated. Let me give you an example. You spend a Saturday morning cleaning up the garage, getting everything where it belongs in the right shelves and so forth. How long does it stay that way? A week, a month, whatever. As time goes on, it gets jumbled up. Whether it's your garage or your locker in school or the closet, whatever, things go to disorder. If you took a deck of cards and you started to shuffle them, and when you finished shuffling, they were in absolute bridge order, would you be uncomfortable? Absolutely, because what you would have experienced is what's known as a time reversal. As time goes on, it gets more random. If you find it gravitating to order, you're in a time reverse. That's one of the ways, they call it the arrow of time, but let's, that's gonna bother us today. Now there are systems that have different, you have what they call an open loop system where you have some energy source, some mechanism, and some result. The simplest form of mechanism would be that source of energy, something that works, and then you get a result. The next level, uh, there's a higher level of design here where you have something that senses against a, 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 a datum. Which, and you sense that and you have it adjust to a level. Your thermostat in your house is that and you set a temperature and tries to bring it to that. That's a closed loop system if it's working properly, okay? You can get even more complicated ones that adapt themselves. Like on a big office building, you'll have the, the uh, temperature will be adjusted in anticipation of what it's gonna be when it's the early part of the day and so forth. In other words, you can, you can have this thing, you can have an adaptive control. The point I'm getting at is there are levels of design at each level, it gets more complicated. All of you could probably design an open loop system. Some of you might be skilled to do a closed loop system. Some of you might be that sophisticated. You see, each one of these is a higher level of skill required, okay? Now, there's, so there, you have open loop systems, closed loop systems, adaptive, I'm just showing you a few. You can also have self-modifying systems. That's part of what a computer does. They realize that a, a calculator can operate on, on numbers and do calculations for you, but if you can design it so that the, it can not only change the numbers, it can change the, the, the recipe for the numbers, that's called a computer. 
where you have in the memory not only the data, but also the program. And it can modify its own program. That's what, that's, that's what makes a, what we think, take for granted today as a computer. Now, that leads to the whole idea of intelligent machines. Machines that, that, they, that they themselves can determine what they're going to do. They can evaluate things. They can make appraisals and so forth, internal to their, to their work ethic. So as you get into intelligent machines, there's self-modifying systems. Then you get into computers that will program themselves. In today's world, you don't program the computer bit by bit. There are packages where the computer will generate the program you're asking for if you speak the right language. So there's different computer languages, and there's ways they'll program themselves. Then you can get to computers that will actually diagnose themselves if there's something wrong. And that starts to, see, each one of these levels is more challenging, requires more skill, more knowledge. And after that, you can even get self-repairing. So I'm not talking about self, well, self-repairing. The, uh, the air defense computer that was for a year, the Sage computer, was a, 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 a classic to visit if you're ever in Santa Monica to visit the granddaddy of the big machines. Um, when they came out with the NFS Q27, the advanced solid state version of it, it didn't use seven or eight bits per, per typewriter stroke, it used 11. And by doing that, it could not only detect an error, it could fix the error it detected. And it was an interesting thing to watch. You'd watch this computer doing its job, and while it's running, you'd take a card and pull it out. It would continue doing its job, correcting for the fact that that card was missing. It's very bizarre to realize the level that they went to for the air defense with a not only an error-detecting code, but an error-correcting code. There's probably not one, one engineer in a thousand that would know how to design, to design a detecting code lots of ways. An error-correcting code that will not only detect but correct its own error is a level of sophistication one order uh, removed. And then, of course, you have machines that will actually reproduce themselves. We haven't built many of those, but uh, I remember always seeing a cartoon of this guy with a factory. And on all the workbenches, as far as you could see, there were robots building other robots. And the, and the guy said, told his friends, I don't know where it's all going to end. <laughs> so, but okay, so with that kind of background, I want to talk about an example of, compli of complexity here. And I'm going to look at what I call a constellation of miracles. And this is going to occur within, inside of a miniature city. I'm going to know how to design, to design a detecting code lots of ways. An error correcting code that will only detect but correct its own error is a level of sophistication one order uh, removed. And then, of course, you have machines that will actually reproduce themselves. We haven't built many of those, but uh, I remember always seeing a cartoon of this guy with a factory. And on all the workbenches, as far as you could see, there were robots building other robots. And the, and the guy said, told his friends, I don't know where it's all going to end. <laughs> so, but okay, so with that kind of background, I want to talk about an example of, compli of complexity here. And I'm going to look at what I call a constellation of miracles. And this is going to occur within, inside of a miniature city. A miniature city. Okay? Now, if we study the human body, the body itself, of course, is composed of organs. 
the organs are composed of tissues, like cells, and the tissues are those are composed of cells, and they are composed of molecular robots, and we can go on and on down into the subatomic structure. I'm not going to get into that. I'm just going to jump right in the middle and talk a little bit about the cells and the molecular robots that are inside them to give you a flavor here. Okay. There's so much that we were taught years ago about the simple cell. You'll find that phrase in many of the textbooks. And in the old days, they thought, in the days of Darwin, they thought a cell was simple. Today, we're, we're much smarter than We discover that the single cell in your body is unparalleled in its complexity and its adaptive design. And I want to go into this. It has inside it a central memory bank. It is composed, has assembly plants and processing units inside. It has repackaging and shipping centers, all within the cell. It has robot machines inside. They're actually protein molecules. Some of these are composed of 3,000 atoms in three-dimensional configurations. And there's hundreds of, several hundred thousand types in your cell of different kinds of robots in there. And uh, there are elaborate communication systems that take care of quality control and repairs things that need repair. This is all going on inside of each cell, okay? Let's take a look at this. Let's make a model of a simple cell to get a feeling for this. Let's make a model a thousand million, in other words, a billion times larger than life. We're gonna pretend each atom is about the size of a tennis ball. Can you visualize it so far? Okay. We need 10 million million atoms, that's 10 to the 13th, 10 with 13 zeros. Just to count them, if you counted one per minute, it would take you 19 million years to count them. That's a lot of atoms, okay. The model we're talking about would end up being over 10 miles in diameter. So you get a feeling of what we're talking about here. Now the cell is surrounded by a plasma membrane, but that is carefully designed to have gateways for exchanges. It has signal re receptors that can tell what's going on. And it's filled with what they call cytoplasm. But in the, inside this, you have the nucleus, which is an information system and has a master library. That library alone is going to amaze us as we get into it. But there's a nucleus with automated factories and product. It actually manufactures products, checks the quality, and ships it. And so it's surrounded with power plants that are the energy source for all that's going on. There's uh, processing, packaging, shipping, and export preparation centers. And uh, there's places for storage, transport, and even trash disposal. This is all being organized inside this cell. You with me so far? Okay. Now, there are automated factories in there, robot machines, as I say, hundreds of thousands of different types. They use artificial languages and decoding systems to do their work. And those decoding systems are the most sophisticated coding systems we've ever encountered. They use a three out of four error correcting code to communicate all this. They have memory banks for information storage and they alone are gonna amaze you in terms of what happens there. There are elegant control systems regulating automated assembly. The components are manufactured automatically by machines. There's prefabrication and modular construction. They have error fail safe and proofreading devices to control the quality. 
In other words, it checks out its own work to make sure there's no mistakes. Can you, this is all, by the way, I, I forgot to mention, all this happened by accident. It all just fell together, okay? Now, I spent some time at the Ford Motor Company, six years there, and one of the proud uh, uh, possessions of the Ford Motor Company was the largest integrated manufacturing plant in the world. It was known as the Ford River Rouge plant. And uh, it's no longer there, it's finally got dismantled, but it was famous worldwide because it's totally integrated. I'll explain what I mean by that. They had uh, ore docks, steel furnaces, coke ovens, rolling mills, glass. They made their own steel, their own glass, and the paint was actually manufactured in that plant. And they had 93 different buildings, making tires, stampings, engines, all that stuff. It was all there. With a massive power plant, there were 120 miles of conveyors in there. There's over 100 miles of railroad within the plant and 16 lo locomotives. And um, raw ore came in one end, raw ore, raw iron ore and so forth. And, and what came out of the other end were finished cards every 49 seconds. Everything on that car was built within that plant. So it's totally integrated. And I'm using this as an example because I'm going to suggest that the cell in your body is more complex than the River Rouge plant was. I'll show you The Fort River Rouge plant in Michigan had, as I say, raw limestone ore and so forth. And in one end, it manufactured its own steel, glass, and paint. It made engines totally automated. The manufacture of the engines was totally automated. And it's one of the most, when you had a tour, one of your options was to watch the engine plan. If you're smart, you skip that one because it's boring. It's all just automated machinery. There's nothing happening. There's a couple of guys around just to make sure everything's working. But you know the, the assembly line was much more interesting to watch. The steel-making furnaces were fascinating. St taking the options to what to see, if you were well-advised, you wouldn't bother watching the engine plan. It's interesting in terms of what it is, but it's boring to watch. And it assembles mixed models, options, colors, and new cars on the other end. So the, uh, the simple cell in your body is more complex than the Ford Rouge plant. And by the way, the cell in your body can do something that the River Rouge plant can't do. The cell is capable of replacing its entire structure within a matter of a few hours. That cell, with all its complexity, can replace itself in a matter of a few hours. And it's going on continually throughout your body. And uh, so, the building blocks that are used inside are amino acids. There are hundreds of them known, but there are only 20 that are utilized by living systems in the construction of proteins. Now, there's something very interesting about some of these, prote these uh, proteins is their chirality. They're, they are asymmetrical. You can, have a left, you can get a mirror image of one, and they're different. And what's interesting about this is the mirror image of one is poisonous to the other. In other words, uh, I'll get into there's the left-handed or right-handed ones, but the well, let me, let's get in, I'll get to that in a minute here. Most proteins are linear sentences of between 100 to 500 amino acids. If you take those amino acids, they define a protein. How many of, are there typically as many as 600 in there? And uh, some of them, some of the amino acids are uh, insoluble in water, some are soluble in water. 
Now, this chirality, if I take one of these molecules, I can get the mirror image of it. And what's interesting is that the, uh, um, the drug for naproxen sodium is a painkiller, but its mirror image is a, is, a dead, uh, is a deadly poison. Now, if these things happen by accident, you'd expect to get 50% left-handed, 50% right-handed, and they would be antagonistic to each other. But in other words, they don't. They get, they're, 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 uh, they're manufactured in the way that is appropriate for their application. I'll show you that here in a minute. But this, the very chirality of the molecules in itself is a total refutation of that, this happening by accident. Couldn't possibly. Couldn't possibly. It's like flipping a coin, making sure you always got hits, if that's what you wanted, see. And uh, all the DNA nucleides are, are right-handed, and all the amino acids are left-handed. And if they're not, there's a disaster. They stay, they have to conform to the chirality they're designed for. So this, des this design thing is enforced by the system. It can't be random. It's very skillfully designed, is my point. Okay. Now, there are 20 amino acids that make up life. And they're listed here. I won't try to mispronounce them. That's not important. But half of them are hydrophobic. That is, they're not soluble. They don't dissolve in water. The other half are soluble in water. Okay. And uh, so, uh, and of the ones that are soluble, some of them are positive charged. They are basic. And some of them are negative. They are acidic. Okay. Now, there are codes that define those 20 acids. That's the genetic code, in effect. And those are, those are not only your 20 amino acids. They have punctuation. They have start and stop bits, which tell when to start and when to stop. Okay? So we've got three out of four error-correcting codes here. This is another way of diagramming the same thing there. And so, and they have start and stop bits, if you will. Now, your DNA is your master, if you visualize your DNA as the master copy in the library, what you want to do is make a copy of what you need to put out on the working floor, out on the manufacturing floor. And so, you take those four, I won't, again, I won't get into the details, but there's four basic uh, elements to the coding structure. The, the error-correcting code is a three out of four error-correcting code. And I, I, I'm going to diagram it here with just A, T, G, C. Uh, C. And they, it happens, they intrinsically like to pair up. The A's and T's join, and the G's and C's will naturally join. And so if you have, a, a, the, the, that's your natural affinity. But you take a series of those codes, and they will define a protein, okay? Now, because there's complementary pairs, that makes this code self-replicating. It can make a copy of itself. Because what happens is that it will split apart. And as it splits far, far enough apart, the, the missing half in the ambience will tear up with it. So you get two copies. Just by splitting up, you get two identical copies because of the way the coding structure is designed. Did that all happen by accident? Absolutely not. It happens to be an elegant, brilliant form of coding structure. Okay? And what happens then? Well, see, what you have, the DNA is your master blueprint. 
you want a transcription of that called the RNA. That's like, a, it's visualized like a photocopy that you're gonna take out on the factory floor. And that gets translated in by machines into proteins. It's the, it's the recipe for making the proteins, okay? And the crypt dogma was that it can only go in one direction, DNA to proteins. But retroviruses, when they can go the other way, where behavior can change the protein, that'll change the way the protein's made later. And that's a big shock to realize that behavior can be inherited. But uh, moving on here. What fascinated me is when the DNA is de dealt with, there's some editing that goes on. And the machinery will, when it makes an RNA copy of that, there are certain portions of the code, it drops out. It knows which ones to drop out. So those are called introns, they're removed, and what's left then is repackaged to be the messenger RNA. And it's interesting, the early uh, uh, microbiology books had felt that the introns were junk DNA. It didn't have anything to do with manufacturing proteins. They discarded it. And I was shocked to discover that accounted for 95% of the codes. That doesn't make sense. They've since discovered that just because they're not used in making proteins, that doesn't mean they're not used. They're used for architectural reasons, apparently. So the introns are not junk DNA. We are smarter now we, than we were, uh, you know, say 10 years ago. But uh, now you take the messenger RNA, that's a strip of these codes that define a certain protein. And there's a device that the cell builds, which is in effect a, the transfer RNA. It's like a reading head. And as it moves along here, it will pick up, it'll decode the codes to get a start and a particular uh, amino acid. And it goes, as it moves along, it builds that chain and it, it manufactures the protein that is specified in those codes. Are you with me so far? Can you imagine this happening by accident, by random design? Hardly. And this, of course, creates the protein chains. It creates over uh, 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 several thousand different kinds that are used in, 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 uh, in life. So the proteins are simply an amino acid chain, if you realize that. And if you take just pick three of these. They each have their own particular chemical definition. They are designed with portions that allow them to chain. So these things then will inherently chain because of the way the molecule is designed. These molecules then will, once they are, are put together to make the chain, they will adopt a three-dimensional shape depending on their solubility in water or not and whether plus, uh, how they're electrically charged. And I'll go through that for you. Negatively charged groups will associate with positively charged groups, obviously. Hydrophobic side will stack in the center. They're the ones that don't like water. The hydrophilic side will arrange themselves on the surface in contact with the water. So that starts to shape the thing, and it'll take a shape that represents the lowest energy and uh, a, a, a stable three-dimensional shape which is the minimum energy conformation. That's dictated by the amino acid sequence. So that sequence has been designed, so it, well, once it's made, it intrinsically to take the right shape to perform the task that it was designed to do. This is a design recipe that is more elaborate than anything we can imagine. We are slowly discovering, little by little, the incredible 
elegance of the design. But you see what I'm saying? This is, a, this is as distant as you can become from randomness. Now, I want you to determine and understand the difference between the technology of conveyance and the technology of content. My technology of conveyance might be the kind of, is that, is it a, uh, uh, is it a, uh, a uh, phone? Or is it an iPad? Or is it a physical book? Those are all technologies of, con of conveyance. Is it microfilm? Is it, a pay is, it a, is it a scroll like Old Testament? Or is it a codex like we think of as a notebook? Those are technologies of conveyance. Says nothing about the content of the manuscript. You see? So the, the media, the verse of the man, did the ink write the book? So you can have an incredible machine that makes beautiful bindings and prints clearly, crisply on the right kind of paper and all that. That's got nothing to do with what the book is containing in information. Those are two unrelated things, you see. Okay, so now I want to take, we talked, we opened this discussion about epistemology with my little thing with two, uh, 347 beads, right? I want to take a different one. I want to take hemoglobin. This is 574 amino acids long, okay? And if, here are the various amino acids that make it up. There's 574 amino acids. There's 36 of the glycine, 60. There, there are these amounts of each one of these put together in a certain order, okay? Now, chance, if this happened by chance, it's very inefficient. Let me show you how. A hemoglobin molecule has 574 elements chosen not from an alphabet of two like black and white. This is these, each one is chosen from an alphabet of 20. You have 20 choices and you want to pick a total of 574 among the 20 different types. That gives you a hemoglobin molecule, okay? There are 10 with 650 zeros after it possibilities. When you have that many to choose from, an alphabet of 20, and you're going to pick up 574 elements, you've got 650 zeros after 10. <laughs> That's a bunch. But here's the point. Essentially, not quite, but close, only one of them is hemoglobin. So what's your chance, if that happened by randomness, it becomes obviously absurd. See, if you change just one of them, or actually a couple of them, you have what's called hemoglobinopathy. It's, it's fatal. So it's kind of important for them to be the right ones in the right order. Is that, do you rely on chance for that? Of course not. The incredibly skillful design of your body cells are leading to the manufacture of what you need here. Now, we talked about 347 beads from an alphabet of two when we started. And that was 10 with 104 zeros, and that was ridiculous, of course. Here we have 574 elements from an alphabet of 20, and that's 10 with 650 zeros after. Okay, remember Burrell's law, 10 with 50 is considered absurd. So I want, I, we, we, we've moved the, the goalposts so far out of reach of chance, it can't happen. There isn't time or the material. It's too inefficient. No, you're not. 
we're going to we dis, we discover that God's primary jealousy is his skill as creator because it confronts us every time we pick up a leaf and look at it or the feather of a bird or anything you encounter especially I won't really leave it to just life but if you pick anything having to do with life you discover it's only on the earth see that if you take if they say they say that the universe is 15 billion years old let's accept that that that's only 10 to the 18 seconds 10 to the 18th is a big number itself that's how many seconds are in the universe if the universe is 15 billion years old do the math it's amazing it's only 10 to the 18 and uh, I confronted Dr. Teller and uh, Norris Keeler on that we were at a board meeting and they were talking about 10 to the 17th or 10 to the 18th and I tried to say oh gee that's more than there are seconds in the universe they both looked at me startled. What are you talking about? He says, do the math. You're the guys who try to tell me the world's 15 billion years old, right? Yeah, well, roughly. Yeah, okay. That's an accepted guess. Okay. Well, that's only 10 to the 17th, 10 to the 18th seconds. Dr. Teller himself. See, they use those numbers at Livermore in their scientists, but they still don't have the grasp of the size of that. 10 to the 66 atoms of the galaxy, 10 to the 80th particles in a tiny galaxy. So the probability of anything over 10 to the 50 is defined as absurd. The specificity of hemoglobin is vastly beyond chance. It's equivalent to winning the lottery every day for 90 days in a row. <laughs> if that reaches you, okay. Let me just believe one more thing to sort of get across the idea that in our body, uh, I often ask a group, what is the most frequently visited library in the world? And the answer is your own DNA in your own cell. It's read almost continuously. Now, how is it read? Let me put it in a, a model we try to visualize here. I want you to visualize having two strands of monofilament fishing line, 125 miles long. Can you visualize that? I want you to store this inside a basketball. A double strand. 125 miles, I want you to store that inside a something the size of a basketball, okay? I want you to be able to unzip, take it out, unzip it, copy it, and then restore it on spools, do all this at three times the speed of an airplane propeller without tangling. Could you design such a thing? That is what's going on in your cells. The whole procedure, you get a good book on microbiology, or better yet, watch one of these computer-generated renderings of what's really going on, and that's what's going on. The equivalent of that, if you can visualize that. The, even just the mechanical handling of it is mind-boggling how that got designed, and it works flawlessly, continually, day and night, in every cell of your body. Astonishing. So the basic question, which came first, the DNA or proteins? It takes proteins to make DNA. And it takes DNA to make protein. You talk about a chicken and egg type of debate. This is the fundamental one. Which came first? They both had to be created at the same time. You can't create the DNA without the protein. You can't get the protein without the DNA. They have to be designed together. Anybody that's been in a large design effort knows that the whole idea between these large systems is communication among the working groups. 
so that things will end up playing together. You, you, randomness is your enemy. Randomness is called error. Randomness is called noise. You want signal, not noise. They both had to be created at the same time in order to have a consistent system architecture. The architecture of your body is incredibly skillful. And here's the amazing thing. Do you realize the same three out of four error-correcting code is in all life? Whether you're a sheep, a horse, what? It's all, it all came from the same software house. It's all using the same coding structure. That's a digital coding structure, which is exactly, exactly what is required in, in uh, Genesis, each after their own kind. Huh? See, thoughts, language, are not physical. It's software, not hardware. Okay. So the death of Darwinism, Darwinians, cannot explain the origin of life. Do you know why they can't? Because they cannot explain the origin of information. See, they can talk about adaptations, all those, fine, that's okay. Where does the information come from? Mutations are the loss of information, not the adding of information. Where does the information come from? You've all seen my peanut butter thing. I was gonna do that here and I forgot to get set up and I probably run out of time anyway. Um, I think you may have seen this on YouTube. I love to come to a group with a brand new jar bought from a peanut butter. And the, the, you know, the, the, our science, they tell us that matter plus energy can occasionally yield life. That's what they try to sell you, the whole premise of biogenesis. Have some matter, some energy, and you can eventually, because of whatever, get life. No, you don't. And, they can say, and, you, and we do, uh, let me give you an example. I bought this little jar of peanut butter. It's, in fact, it's an open thermodynamic system. Heat can enter and light, dude, light can go through the glass even, okay? It's peanut butter. Now, if they're right, occasionally there should be some new life inside. So I open it up and peel off the sealed wrapper and have a sigh of relief. There's no new life. Aren't you glad? And we, have, we conduct over a billion experiments a day for the last hundred years, depending on the fact that you need information, the equation's incomplete. It's matter plus energy plus information that makes new life. And you can have the, inf the, new, the information in the form of a spore that gets contaminated and you get mold or something. But the point is, the very fact that you can keep food secure by sealing it is a refutation of the possibility of evolution taking place or biogenesis taking place. We, every time you take a, a product from the market and you have to break the seal to use it, you're breaking that protection to keep information you don't want out of there. You follow me? It's not matter and energy, it's matter and energy plus information of some kind. That information can be in the form of a spore or a contaminant or something else. Anyway, we'll move on here. So the major insights. The origin of information cannot be explained. No one can explain where the information originally came from. And by the way, the only place you find life is on the Earth. Irreducible complexity, that's what Michael Behe introduced us to. Refutes designed by accident or chance. If you have a mousetrap, it consists of five things, right? A platform, a bar, a spring, and a catch. If you have, it takes five things. If you have those five things, you can catch mice. 
if you have four of the five, you don't catch four, you don't catch 80% of the mice, you catch none. There's a concept of irreducible complexity involved. And that's another way of just pulling the rug out from under the Darwinists. The choreography, if you ever get a chance to see a computer rendering, and I used to try to include that, but it gets too complicated to see a, a computer rendering of a mitosis of the cell, how everything gets orchestrated. All, they all choose sides, and they split the, the whole mitosis that takes place is breathtaking, just breathtaking. And that, there's no way that that can be, that's organized randomly. In fact, there's one other step I'll just throw in here. Um, imagine that you are a group of musicians that can play any instrument. You have those skills. And let's assume that I have a copy of a symphony, a complete, everything you need to know, the whole thing. And I give every one of you a complete copy of that symphony. Do we have a symphony? No, because there's something missing. You can call it the conductor. There's also a function that's called conflict resolution. Someone has to decide you're going to be first violin, you're going to be percussion, you're, you, you follow me? Someone has to make assignments because you, you're going to have diverse roles. Who decides? Just having a complete copy of the symphony doesn't solve the problem. Somebody has to conduct. When you analyze that from an information science point of view, you come to the shocking conclusion that as a baby grows, God is, in, pardon me, God is involved in every cell division. There has to be external input to coordinate it all so it comes out as it should. And digital codes, of course, require pre-planning. The difference between a believer and a non-believer is the believer knows that there's a purpose, to, there's a direction of history. People without that think that history is just randomly going where it wants to go. No, no, no. There's pre-planning involved not only in the creation, there's pre-planning involved in God's program for mankind. No system that's dependent on subsystems can survive random failures. If you're a collection of systems and you depend on those systems working, you, will, you, you, can't, you, you have to have provision for subsystem failure bringing down the whole system. No system dependent on subsystems can survive random failures. And all cells derive, you know, no one's ever built a cell. Every cell you've, is derived from a previous one. And that in itself is a refutation. Of, that, that should bring some humility to our, our concept of science. They have never been able to recreate life themselves. They can simulate things, but can't. And I love this Psalm 19. We'll go through it again. The heavens declare the glory of God. There's an information science term. The firmament showeth his handiwork. Day day uttereth speech. Night to night showeth knowledge. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Their line is gone throughout the earth, their words to the end of the world. So those are, it's all information science. And it goes right on through talking about the sun is going forth is from the end of heaven, his circuit to the ends of it, and there's nothing hid from the heat thereof. Nothing hid from the, the sun gives the, gives the energy to the entire solar system, not just the Earth, but all the way the energy needs of all the planets. 
Now, every fall we see the brilliant autumn colors. And that's because of the accessory leaf pigments that normally assist the plant in photosynthesis by capturing certain wavelengths of light. These pigments, called carotenoids, become uh, visible when they, they, you all see it. It looks so beautiful in the fall as you begin to see those come up. All you need to do is take a leaf and cut it up open and look at how it's designed. The leaf provides the food for the rest of the plant through the process of photosynthesis. The outermost uh, layer of the leaf is the epidermis, protected by a waxy coating of a cuticle. Guard cells implanted in the epidermis form spores known as stomata, through which water, oxygen, and, carb and carbon dioxide pass. Embedded in the inner dishes of the leaf are the chloroplasts, where photosynthesis occurs. The plant veins consist of two specialized tissues. Xylem conducts water from the plant to the leaf, while phloem uh, carries the food from the leaf to the plant. The, the skillful design of the leaf is evident by just examining. Somebody thought it through. Somebody planned it through. It gets better. Now, if you start trying to actually model what goes on in what's called the Calvin cycle, the complex electron transfer chains are involved in two different pigments and, uh, and a multitude of enzymes to process the carbon fixation, to make, uh, make the sugar, the glucose fabrication, aerobic respiration to get rid of the oxygen. And so you have a leaf into which you have light shining. That's where the energy comes from. CO2 is brought in and water, H2O. And what it manufactures is a very complex molecule. I want you to notice the CH, the C6H12O. This, this is a big one. It's a very complex molecule. And uh, so the, it, uh, this is where green plants and other organisms make use the energy of light to convert carbon dioxide and water into a simple sugar glucose. All life derives from light. That's the first direct quote by God in the Bible. Let light be, he says. And uh, so, now, and the oxygen, of course. Now, there's one thing that needs to, this is incomplete because you've got to multiply the CO2, the oxygen, and the H2O by six to make a balance. Okay? Six to one. Now, photosynthesis just means to, to, to build with light. And we've got sugar factories producing millions of new glucose molecules every second. Most plants produce more glucose than they can use, and they store it as starch and other carbohydrates in roots, stems, and leaves. Each year, photosynthesizing organisms produce about 170 billion metric tons of extra carbohydrates and about 30 million tons for every person on the earth. How's that for a diet, huh? <laughs> now, what's interesting about this is we can throw out plants and animals. The plants obviously give off uh, 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 the oxygen and the sugar. The animals take the oxygen and the, and the sugar and they give off the CO2, which the plants need to repeat the cycle. In other words, the design here isn't of a plant or of an animal, it's the whole package imbalance on the planet Earth. And uh, so, so the nails in, in, in Darwin's coffin. Michael Denton in 1986 published a book in which he as an evolutionist admitted that evolution no longer explains what we know about the universe. It's no longer viable. Philip Johnson comes on with Darwin on trial. 
Michael Behe in his book, Darwin's Black Box, introducing the concept of irreducible complexity. And then, of course, we have William Dembski, and the, he's, he's the mathematician. But it's these guys, these four authors themselves, if you took nothing else but just took their four books, they have set the scientific world on its ear. The concept of evolution is no longer a viable hypothesis. And yet, it's the only politically correct one is that accepted in our culture. If you try to have a career in science and they find out you're a creationist, you're career limiting yourself. You get fired. You've got to toe the line. The politically correct belief is what people call evolution. What they really mean is biogenesis. Obviously, there's adaptation. There's, the word evolution is misused. What they really mean is they're talking about spontaneous biogenesis, the beginning of life. Things can't adapt before, you know, <laughs> until they're in existence. So those books. And then Stephen Meyer and the Signature in the Cell is a, a masterpiece. Steve's a, a good friend and one of the speakers at the conference. Now, following the fall of man, creation is subjected to futility and bondage. And to reveal himself more clearly, the Creator has given us his word. And his word superseded. His word is pure. And God puts his word even above his own name. But we, we've sort of jumped into the book of Romans to get a perspective here, and we took it only to a certain verse. I'm going to go a little further this time. The grace of God revealed God's righteousness and our iniquity. That's the big problem. And his remedy is through grace. And I love the way Helen's he summarized it. He says grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. Christ paid the price so that the Father could receive us without compromising his righteousness by having the Son pay the price. Our fare has been paid. Book of Romans, the most comprehensive expression of theology in the entire scripture. Remember, just to review the last time we talked a little bit, Romans 17, for therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as is written, the just shall live by faith. And we talked about the, 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 uh, the fact that God is revealed, it's in present tense, it's continuously revealed. And uh, because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God hath showed it to them. And that manifest means made clear. We, we, got, we worked our way down to verse 20 yesterday, Romans 1.20. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so, they, they, so that they are without excuse. And I suggest that Paul did not have the advantage of modern microbiology to come to that conclusion. But we have even less excuse. So but invisible things clearly seen being understood by the things that are made. You look at a leaf or a bird's feather or whatever and you realize there's an elegant design behind it all. So we are without excuse. Because that, get this now, because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God. Neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations and their foolish heart was darkened. That's the reason for God's condemnation of the pagan. This builds on the preceding verse just as the verse is built on the first. The relationship uses the same Greek connective at the beginning of verses 19 and 21. In the latter, here translated because. Because that. That's why he condemns them. For perverting God's glory. People's suppression of the truth is seen in the rejecting the clearly visible evidence of God as the sovereign creator. And unable... To free their conscience, they turned their perversion of that knowledge into idolatry. 
The clause, although they knew God, refers to an original experiential knowledge of God such as Adam and Eve had before and after the fall. One would suppose that to know God would be to honor him. When truth is rejected, however, in time the ability to recognize and receive truth is impaired. If you get some truth, it's important what you do with it. If you receive it, you can get more truth. If you uh, reject it, you, you bear the consequences. So verse 22, professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. And the word in the Greek, amorethism, means became stupid. Became stupid. Progressively they became fools. They became stupid. And that describes our culture right now. As you look around. Until man knows a state of sin, he wants no grace. If the evidence of guilt is insufficient or inconclusive, there is no apparent need for a pardon. That's one of the reasons that the world is in denial. They don't want to confront that. And so they change the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man, and to birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. Incorruptibility is the essence of God's being. God is incorruptible. This foolishness is demonstrated by the worship of idols as gods in the forms of people and animals. All through history, man turns to these substitutes. They became fools. The ultimate irony in humanity's refusal to glorify the true God is the insanity or stupidity of idolatry. One of the most amazing things to watch is someone you know who's apparently pretty bright, who rejects the gospel, watch what they then take up on. It's astonishing the foolishness they then jump into. The worship of gods who are not and the demons who are. The more you reflect on the infinite glory and majesty of the eternal God, the more hideous is the unspeakable insult to him of any kind of idolatry. And I think we've gone the extra mile. You know, the ancients worshipped idols of wood or stone or bronze. We've invented the most insulting alternate God possible. Randomness. We, we argue that the creator wasn't needed. It all just happened by accident. That's the most insane. It makes more sense to ascribe it to another god you may create than it does to say there wasn't one necessary. That's the most insulting one of all. So they became fools. Man's refusal to acknowledge and glorify God leads to a downward path. And I want you to notice the downward path. First, worthless thinking. Next, moral insensitivity. And, finally, religious stupidity as an idol worship. It doesn't stop there. It's going to surprise you where this is going. It says, we become like the gods we worship. That's quite a phrase, by the way. And it's in two Psalms, if you want to jot this down. It's in your notes. Psalm 115.8 and Psalm 135.15-18. We become like the gods we worship. This really hit me once when we were visiting Egypt. We were leaving Cairo. We're heading up 
uh, the road with the bus. And along the road, it looked like there was a white thing with, and we looked more closely, it wasn't concrete, it was trash. And it was, the, the crate on the bottom was sewage. And it really hit me because Egypt was not a third world country like many. This was one that ruled the world at one time. One of the earliest empires was the it was Egypt. It once it adopted the worship of death. It's all involved with mummies. You go to the Cairo Museum. It's interesting, amazing how they committed themselves there. And as they look at all the things they worship, the thing that's at the top of the heap is the scarab. In fact, you can buy in jewelry stores little you know scarabs. You know what the scarab actually is? It's a dung beetle. It becomes their symbol for creation because when some cannibal feces hit the ground, apparently out of nowhere, these things come. So they seem to come from nowhere, so they became a, a metaphor for creation. And so they worship the dung beetle as a symbol of the God they worship. And, they, and here they become like the gods they worship. Here they're in poverty. In, in living on trash. This is a country that once ruled the world. They become like the gods they worship. Idols of stone are cold, unresponsive, and impersonal, right? Okay. So if you worship them, you too will become cold, unresponsive, and impersonal. Is the world materialistic, harsh, and unforgiving? I think it's a good, if you worship the world, then you too will become materialistic, harsh, and unforgiving. You become like the God you worship. That's why you want to be very sure that you worship Christ. So your goal is to become like him. You see that contrast. You don't take anything else away from this lecture. You take that one, but I got another surprise coming. There is a very specific judgment of God for denying him as creator. Any group or any culture, any nation that denies him as creator faces a specific wrath of God. God has a number of different kinds of wraths. What they call appositional wrath, that's his hatred of sin under any conditions, no, no surprise. The cataclysmic wrath, like Noah's flood, as an example, there are others' examples. There's eschatological wrath, the second coming, Armageddon, you name it, right? But there's another one called the abandonment wrath that you have to study to, to realize what's going on here, the abandonment wrath. This is what was done to Samson. Remember in Judges 16 where Samson visits Delilah for that third time. And she says, gives him the big charge. You think he's going to break loose like he always did? And he couldn't. Can you imagine the shock of Samson when he realized that his strength was gone? That God had abandoned him. There in verse 20, when you read uh, Judges 16, that recount that whole thing. Can you imagine the shock of Samson when he realized that God had chosen to abandon him? No surprise. Same thing happens to Hosea. Hosea is in the south, but God calls him to go to the north and preach against the northern kingdom. And from chapters 4 through 14 in Hosea, it's all about that, as God lays out his indictment on the northern kingdom. But the key verse in verse 17, chapter 4, God says, tells Hosea, 
leave Ephraim is the largest of the northern kingdoms. It's also idiomatically a, a, a label for the whole group, if you will. It says, let Ephraim, leave Ephraim alone. In other words, he's abandoning him. The judgment against the northern kingdom was God standing back and letting the Assyrians wipe them out, the Assyrians wipe them out. That's the whole story of Hosea. But again, what God was doing, just stand back. Just abandoning them. And Habakkuk does the same thing to the southern kingdom. So I was shocked to discover that Romans, from verse 28 to 32 that we're about to read, I have read for many decades, and I always thought the coming verses were about homosexuality. And I was shocked to realize that's not what they're about exactly. Let's watch, watch with me here what God declares as a result of their failure to acknowledge him as creator. He sends a judgment on them that is some strange aspects here. Let's take a look at this here. Sorry, verse 24. Wherefore God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lusts of their own hearts to dishonor their own bodies between themselves who changed the truth of God into a lie and worshiped and served the creature more than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. God, notice, God gave them, also gave them up to three times in this passage what he's describing is a curse on them for not recognizing him as creator. I always felt, don't misunderstand me, that the choice of being homosexual is a choice of sin of any kind. Like any sin is a choice. And if they choose that, that's an, individually speaking, it's a sin. Collectively, it's a judgment of God. Wherefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lust of their own hearts, to dishonor their own bodies between themselves, who changed the truth of God into a lie and worship the creature more than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this cause, God gave them up. Notice who the initiator here is. God is. For this cause, God gave them up unto vile affections. For even their women did change the natural use into that which is against nature. And likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust one toward another. Men with men, working that which is unseemly, and receiving in themselves that recompense of their error which was meet. Whew. And notice... They made it a little clearer, the males and females. This caused God to give up in the final affections, for even their females did change their natural use of that which is against nature. Likewise, also the males, leaving the natural use of the females, burning the lust one to another, males with males working and so forth. It's pretty clear. Even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over. There it is again. God gave them over to reprobate mind, to do those things which are not convenient. Three times God is the instigator. It's a judgment. Being filled with all unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, debate, deceit, malignity, whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, without understanding, covenant breakers, without natural affection, implacable, unmerciful. 
It always fascinates me when the homosexuals celebrate what they call their pride day. Do you understand how God hates pride? What a pride. And in, in Isaiah, it talks about drawing their sin like a, in a cart rope as they parade themselves. Who knowing the judgment of God that they which commit such things are worthy of death. Wow! Let's go over that again. Who knowing the judgment of God that they which commit such things are worthy of death. Not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. Wow. One of the things, you know, when a culture passes laws for same-sex marriage, that's one thing. That's the political arena. That's the world. Shouldn't, we, shouldn't surprise us. But when the churches preach or fail to preach God's attitude about these things, that's an anathema. One of the things when you study the Holocaust in Germany, you have to lay part of that at the feet of the silent pulpits in Germany in that period. One of the great tragedies we have here in America as well as New Zealand, both, is that there are pulpits that are totally muted in terms of God's clear instructions. And I was shocked to realize, I've taught, I've taught Romans chapter 1 many times in broad terms, it shocked me to realize that verses 28 to 32 in, in Romans 1 isn't indicting homosexuality as a sin. It is, but that's not what it's talking about. It's talking about a judgment of God that he three times puts on a culture that fails to acknowledge him as creator. We're getting our just reserve. One of the thing, one of the questions I ask when I travel to America, do you think that God's abandoned the wrath has started in America? There's a litmus test. There's a litmus test for that. And uh, the uh, doing the judgment of God worthy of death and a pleasure in them that do them. Wow. The litmus test is the abandonment wrath. Simply ask yourself, has the abandonment wrath of God begun in your country? Pick up a newspaper. If there is an upsurge, if there is a, a commitment to homosexuality as a culture, that's God's abandonment wrath in operation. Is it God always has room for repentance. Always has room for repentance. The abandonment wrath of God has it begun. And uh, so, heavy stuff. Because we need to realize that's the reality we're surrounded in. We need to understand the lies and deceit that pervade our textbooks for our kids in school with bad science. It's not a question of science versus religion. We want to follow the evidence. Science that is taught today is priesthood, not science. Science is a study of evidence. And science focuses itself on things for which there's no evidence. There's no evidence for life outside the planet Earth. The astrobiologists love to talk about it, but there's no evidence to examine. It's a science without evidence. That's called a priesthood. Well, I was wondering how to wrap this up. It's a tough thing to come to grips with. I uh, always like to have some change of pace to finish the session here. 
and I was in, enamored with a psalm, Psalm 148, not as it's in your Bible, but as the way it's paraphrased by Dr. Werner Gitt. Uh, Werner Gitt is a wonderful, brilliant scientist, mathematician, apologist, um, very sophisticated guy. Um, and uh, so uh, he rewrites, he paraphrases Psalm 148. It says, praise the Lord, all you galaxies, appearing like mere dust boats on photographic plates. Praise the Lord, Sirius and your companions, Arcturus, Aldebaran, and Antares. Praise the Lord, all you meteorites, all you comets and planets in your elliptical orbits. Praise the Lord, atmosphere and stratosphere, x-rays and radio waves. Praise the Lord, all you atoms and molecules, protons and electrons, protozoa and radiolara. Praise the Lord, all you birds and dragonflies rushing in by the sky. Praise the Lord, all you microscopic hexagonal snow crystals, all you lustrous blue prisms of copper sulfate. Praise the Lord, all you phosphorescent algae, Anurita maritima and Lingia exotica, floating like sparkling diamonds on the surf. Praise the Lord, topic of cancer, Arctic Circle, all you storms sweeping across the Atlantic Ocean and along the Humboldt Current. Praise the Lord, dark forest of the Amazon, all you tropical islands with your volcanoes, and you, O moon, shining on the swaying palms surrounding the lagoon. Praise the Lord, all you public servants, all you students, all you young maidens. Pr let them praise the name of the Lord, for his name alone is exalted. His splendor is above the earth and the heavens. He has raised the fortunes of his people and taken Israel to his heart. Praise the Lord, indeed. Amen.